0: Hello, and welcome to Love is the Message, a podcast about music, the dance floor, and counterculture. My name is Tim Lawrence, and I'm here, as always, with my good friend, Jem Gilbert. Hi, Jem. Hi.
1: How are you? you?
0: I'm all right. (laughs) I'm all right, too. Are you recovered from a great Beauty and the Beat party on Saturday night? I am, yeah. I'm so I'm so clean living that my recovery time is pretty quick.
1: (laughs) Excellent. (laughs) It's just it's just a big workout, and then I have a nice
0: as it as it should be. (laughs) Um, Excellent. So um, this for this this week we are returning uh, at least in uh, uh, in in our imagination to Brazil uh, and. the second of three parts that we're dedicating to Brazilian music from 1965 to 1975. I say 1965, but the first episode went, as was the case with our Cuban episodes as well. And and some others uh, in addition, Uh, we, we really went back to kind of the, you know, at least the kind of early 20th, late 19th, early 20th century in Brazil in the last episode and sort of tracked the way that, Samba music in particular played this key role in the evolving idea of what it meant to be Brazilian and what, and indeed what, you know, the identity of Brazil as a nation. And we took that up right to the very late 1960s um, and tracking the rise of bossa nova as a kind of jazz inflected form of, of Samba music, the beginning of the breakthrough of some musicians, including Georgie Ben. And this week, We are going to focus on this kind of, you know, renowned uh, period in which that is often referred to as uh, tropicalismo or or witnessed the kind of the breakthrough of the tropicalia movement in Brazil, uh, loosely from very late uh, 1967 through to maybe the beginning of 1969. So it's quite a brief window, but it was definitely an influential one. So, Jem, um, why don't you give us a bit of background on Brazilian politics and the, you know, even the rise of the dictatorship that kind of set the groundwork, if you like, for the rise of tropicalia?
1: Okay, sure. So what's happening in the early 60s in Brazil is that, you know, as is often the case, there's considerable inst- political instability. One of the main features of that instability is a degree of tension, even over the distribution of power w- within the political constitution. So, And this is a feature of Brazilian con- politics right up to this day, that the question of whether power really lies in the hands of the presidency, the executive, or the hands of the legislature, The parliament is never really resolved and it goes back and forth. Um, So, there's this quite complicated process whereby President Quadros uh, actually resigns from the presidency in a sort of stunt, hoping to provoke an upsurge of popular support and demand for him to be reinstated and given new powers. And it backfires, leading to a process which ends up with his vice president. Gula replacing him as president and becoming president. Then there's a sort of back and forth between Gula and the legislature trying to get more power for themselves. Um, The military are always in the background as potential players. But you end up with a situation in the early 60s whereby this um, president, the government of Drow Gula, who is not seen initially as a left-wing figure, ends up being overthrown by a right-wing military hunter with the backing of the United States government. Uh, remember, by the United States government at this time, we don't mean some mad Republican administration. We mean the, the Kennedy administration. Um, because Gular Gou- is trying to implement a relatively moderate social democratic reform program we, from a basically nationalistic perspective, you know, he's not really—he's not a communist. He's not, although he is quite sympathetic to the Cuban Revolution from a sort of nationalistic perspective. That it's seen as a movement for self-determination. So you can see at this time that there's quite a complex set of relationships going on, especially in the context of the Cold War between nationalism and socialism and international communism. And you can get these very strange situations whereby a, po- a political administration that is really just a kind of nationalist government trying to pursue a kind of economic nationalism and a developmental project because it, in, in the pursuit of that project, it is weakening its allegiance to the United States and its sort of neo-imperialist Colonial, you know, neo-colonialist, globalizing capitalism can end up being seen as a threat by the
0: United States.
1: Well, it's also uh, a
0: threat. It's a threat to it's kind of you know the multinational corporate model, isn't it? I guess because that's part of what's going on. I mean, it's really interesting you put it in in those terms of a kind of nationalist approach to the economy. One of the things I kind of read about this about Gulag was indeed he wanted multinationals to reinvest some of their profits back into the Brazilian economy, for example. So it's a really intelligent policy, actually. Um, could have could have forestalled an awful lot of the problems that have emerged with kind of corporate capitalism. I mean, you're not going to get you can't get straightforwardly get rid of corporations or stop them emerging in the first place, but you can contain them. And this was a this was a pretty good idea, and it links into all this stuff we were saying about this kind of powerful emergence of, you know, an idea of Brazilianness and Brazil during the 20th century. Um, so he's the culmination of that, isn't he? But as you say, it's...
1: Well, kind of, yeah. Um, and also, I mean, what's even stranger in some ways about the story is that he's overthrown by a military coup, which institutes uh, an authoritarian military regime, a military dictatorship which remains in power from '64 until 1985. But they pursue the the program that they pursue is not like, for example, the Pinochet's mm. regime in Chile. Mm. It's not really a policy of opening up the economy to American corporations and and globalizing it. It, it is actually they pursue a, policy, a program which, in many ways, is not that different from the one that Goulart was was trying to implement anyway. So they do pursue, uh, they, so they nationalise certain sections of industry. They have, they operate a very kind of directed um, but very authoritarian sort of interventionist state in their economic policy. I mean, in some ways, their, their policy resembles more than anything by contemporary standards, the policy of the Chinese Communist Party. But in terms of sort of global loyalties and kind of political allegiances, they are very clearly allied to the American American military hegemony and very hostile to communist forces anywhere in the world, including in Latin America, hostile to the Soviets. And this is a you know, it is a persistent feature in Brazilian politics, again to this day, that you have this very rich and powerful layer of landowners, and you have a kind of You have an urban middle class, very old fashioned in many ways, really a sort of classic Marxian petty bourgeoisie in some senses, who are also very conservative, very reactionary. And these people, and these forces have always just been quite openly hostile to any form of meaningful political democracy. That they're always convinced that if you basically have just just effective representative liberal democracy for too long then you're going to end up with with some form of socialism or something too close to socialism for comfort so even though the regime that they end up putting in place is not really doing what some other Latin, some Latin American regimes are doing which is simply opening up the economy to exploitation by American corporations. They're not doing that. Nonetheless, they are absolutely hostile to any sort of popular forces. And, you know, this sort of anti-democratic fear of the masses, and the flip side of that, actually, a sort of faith in the democratic potential and virtue of the masses on the part of liberals and socialists, is a very striking feature of Brazilian political culture, going back to at least the beginning of the 20th century. Um, We talked a bit about this last time. So... So I mean, the the consequence for all that actually is that you know the Brazilian economy is is generally seen to have um, you know to have done really well going into the seventies, and to have and not and not really according to the neoliberal model, which is being forced through in places like Chile. But I think. Also, in terms of the global context, I think you have to see the coup against Gu- Guya as one of the things that ends up actually ra- radicalising sex- large sections of the, pu- the public in places like Chile. You know, the, what part, One of the preconditions for people who might just have thought of themselves as relatively moderate social reformers becoming more or less explicitly revolutionary Marxists in places like Chile, is they've seen what, what the Americans will do and what the landed elites will do when people like Gua who is seen initially as coming from the political right you know try to implement relatively mild reforms i mean gua is basically in like it's not a very good comparison but in like british terms he's basically just a sort of one nation tory but this is seen as being too dangerous you know so he's he's overthrown and um you know, you can see how people in other parts of South, Central, and Latin America, you know, they respond to this by, by saying, "Well, we're going to have to just be revolutionaries and ally ourselves with international communism if we're if we're going to even be allowed to have, you know, like a basic national health service." Um, hmm. So that's the context. So it's quite a strange context. So it's a, so in terms of a broad social political context, it's a. It's really the 1964 coup is experienced by many people and many of the people who would go on to become key figures in um, uh, tropicalia or tropicalismo is sort of interchangeable terms within this movement, which you're going to talk about now. Many of them really see the 1964 coup as kind of marking the death of the hopes they had in the early 60s of of Brazil becoming a more modern, more egalitarian, less racist, less class ridden, less sexist uh, kind of country. And the substitution of those dreams for a regime which is committed to national economic development, but is absolutely committed to the idea that national economic development will not involve cultural social liberalisation, political democratisation, or an erasure of established cultural and political hierarchies.
0: Yeah, no, that's really that's really well put, I think, and really interesting. And I, spe- I particularly this idea that which we did touch on last time that you know musicians found themselves really quite well supported by you know successive Brazilian governments. Who, want, who saw them as a, as a way of uh, helping generate, you know, a contemporary Brazilian national identity that also included, you know, significant kind of gestures towards, you know, Brazil's kind of s- slave past and you know Afro-Brazilian citizens. And I think you're right. I think this kind of that that dream starts to kind of, you know, you know, if not die, then it's um, certainly suffers, you know, suffers quite dramatically. Um, through the coup, I suppose the thing that sort of emerges well, are two things. One you've already one thing which you've already really said is that, um, and I was kind of looking at the Naomi Klein book, um, Shock Doctrine, on this as well, which kind of covers some of this material. And you know, she also indeed says that the sort of the the measures that were introduced in Brazil were kind of you know somewhat you know half-hearted, certainly compared to what was going on in Chile. And you know, maybe also in comparison to what was going on in Argentina, about which I know less. But yeah, there was so it's, a, it's this mixture. On the one hand, there wasn't the kind of there wasn't such a kind of show of like you know brutality and you know such a clear kind of suspension of all, of all aspects of kind of democratic civil society. There were there, it was it was substantial, but it wasn't completely radical. And at the same time, what the what the what the sort of US-imposed or supported government did succeed in doing was generate this new sense of opposition. So that's one of the shifts that takes place, isn't it? It wasn't wasn't effective, effective enough to kind of try attempt to wipe out an opposition, but it was sufficient enough to generate a new sense of opposition because musicians had gone from feeling as though they were part of a Brazilian project to being kind of, you know, seen to be outside of that project uh, Include, you know, at times, in, and at times for not being sufficiently Brazilian. So I think it's complicated because it's the other thing that's going on is we're in a period of like, you know, accelerating internationalism, uh, which had already been, you know, taking, you know, had been integrals to Brazil's development, but kind of obviously uh, gathers further momentum in, in 1968 for all sorts of reasons. So anyway, just to kind of switch into the Tropicália side of things a bit more explicitly um i think the one thing to sort of the first thing to sort of note is the way that you know bossa nova uh in particular but also you know arguably samba itself um but maybe in particular bossa nova already kind of taught Brazil, brazilian musicians to kind of see themselves in sort of more international terms they were drawing so heavily on on jazz music um, and the success of bossa nova as again we sort of talked a bit about last time did sort of insert them into a kind of global music culture They was sort of performing in new york and, and and you know other such kind of de- developments uh they were getting sustained attention in the united states and and beyond um and uh it was in it was in 1967, which is just a few years after Bossa Nova broke through, uh, that Tropicalia sort of first emerged as a kind of movement. Um, and as is quite well known, I think, uh, it wasn't just a music movement, but it was initially a kind of multidisciplinary art movement that included sort of film and theatre, visual art and poetry. And indeed, it took its name from a, a well-known Brazilian artist, Helio o Oide- uh, I should have worked out how to pronounce this before I attempted to pronounce it um, Oticica maybe Otika. Um apologies about that but anyway uh, this artist created a 1967 installation which uh, consisted of an apartment tent palm trees in the halls of the gallery and at the end of this kind of walk that you would go through a TV set that was kind of playing you know, you know transmitting live effectively uh, so that's where Tropicalia got its name from this kind of artist and this particular insta- insta- installation. Um, and again, from the very beginning, uh, Tropicalia was seen as kind of uh, articulating, or I should say really re-articulating an idea that goes back to the 1920s, um, which translates as cannibalism uh, or anthropophagia, I think, um, in Portuguese, uh, and this was an idea that had been promoted an ideology really an artistic ideology that had been promoted by Oswald de andrade uh, in a 1928 manifesto, uh, which translates as the anthropophagy or anthrop, of, uh, the anthropophagy manifesto. Um, and, and Andrade had proposed, and again, this is, will already be a familiar idea to those who heard the last episode, uh, Andrade proposed that Brazilian Brazil had this history of cannibalizing other cultures and that this was its greatest strength. So cannibalism was a way that, that – cannibalism sort of started to be seen this to be seen as this way that Brazil could assert itself, in particular against kind of European uh, post-colonial domination and even you know the domination of the United States as well. Um, so one of the manif- one of um, Andrade's manifesto lines, uh, which uh, is it, which translated into English runs, "To p." Or not to pee. This is T U P I. To pee or not to pee—that is the question. So the Tupi, uh, I had to look this up. Obviously, uh, is one of the numerous peoples that are indigenous to Brazil before colonization, who um, apparently practice certain forms of ritual cannibalism. So to pee or not to pee—that is the question. Sort of evokes evokes this idea um, of you, you know. Obviously, uh, um, whether this form of of cultural cannibalism should take place, and simultaneously is a form of itself a form of metaphorical cannibalism of by sort of the fact that it sort of eats Shakespeare. Um, So it's kind of a nice, it's a really nice line that captures kind of what was going on. And just to kind of re-emphasize this point and link it back to the next episode, ever so quickly. Last time I, I sort of introduced some of the arguments of this anthropologist, Gilberto Freire. Freire, I think is pronounced. The master, this book or this publication uh, uh, published by Freyer um, titled The Masters and the Slaves Argued, This the blend of Portuguese, along with indigenous, along with African cultural elements, along with the tropical climate of Brazil, gave Brazil its cultural vitality and even created the basis for this idea that Brazil was at its essence as a nation, a a harmonious blend of of these indigenous African and European peoples who could even form a post-racial society. And of course, that post racial society was never entirely realized, um, but it, it was imagined as being at the heart of kind of its identity. So, that in itself was interesting. And did all of these ideas, I think, in a way, contribute to Tropicalia kind of making the breakthrough that it did? Um, and it was in music that Tropicalia ended up having the kind of the greatest impact of all the various artistic fields that were part of this movement uh and andrade's ideas around cannibalism and brazilianness in particular provided this movement with a platform to describe a form of cultural mixing that was you know arguably indeed was already underway in music you know samba had drawn on argentinian tango and the foxtrot and afro-brazilian practices and bossa nova had uh, you know drawn on jazz music uh there was also this 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 uh, sounds which we didn't really touch on last week. Jovem Guarda uh, was a sound of kind of American rock and roll as processed through Brazil. So this is what Tropicália did in terms of music. It kind of took you know elements of rock and roll and rock and avant-garde sounds and combined them with uh, the native rhythms that were already kind of being kind of established within within Brazil. Um, I mean the movement itself. Uh, only produced a, a very small number of albums i mean i don't know if you count them you know there are all these lists that circulate but there weren't many there seemed may, maybe 20 significant albums um, plus a compilation that we'll go on to talk about and it may the movement itself may have lasted for just over a year um you know very very fleeting sort of doesn't really remind me of No Wave which came later and we'll get maybe to talk about um some way a little way down the line but you know about no 20, wave 20
1: 2033 we'll probably get to No Wave
0: Oh <laughs> <Well, laughs> right <laughs> yeah no that's not too bad actually <laughs> i mean No Wave was, it was like it wasn't even called No Wave in the time when it was not very popular and it only lasted a year so it's kind of like i think tropicale did a bit better than that but it's kind of reminiscent in some ways Anyway, um, but it lasted for just over a year, but it never had this huge impact on, on you know, what's sometimes referred to as MPB, Musica Popular Brasileira. Um, and, you know, it was one of the main things about the tropicalis- tropicalismo is the way that it, um, it drew very heavily on sort of a set of countercultural ideas and trends and developments, whether they were related, you know, somewhat variously and randomly, maybe even to, you know, figures like Bob Dylan or Jean-Luc Godard or Pink Floyd or Louis Brunel, as well as the 1968 Revolt and the rise of Black Power, and it brought them all to bear on their own heritage. Um, so it sounds fantastic, doesn't it? Um, I know that we, you know, our own experience of the music might might be ever so slightly different to how good it sounds on paper. Uh, and how much would like to sort of really, really love this music. Um, but it was, anyway, it was huge. It was hugely influential. Uh, and the key musicians to get onto that, which is a uh, side of things, which we're going to sort of run through a little bit now. The key musicians in this loose grouping included Caetano Veloso, Gilberto Gil, Os Mutantes, uh, the group Os Mutantes, the vocalist Gal Costa, uh, Tom Z. Um, and some others, sometimes uh, Bossa Nova Singer Nara Liao is is included, sometimes Georgie Ben is included. Uh, I think we're gonna actually not spend t- more time on Georgie Ben this week, but talk about him next week. Um, we all, we almost thought that his album, which is sometimes included in these lists, doesn't really sound like a Tropicalia album and is actually, you know, I really it it sounds very different and I really love it. So that also gestures towards something but anyway he's some George e. Ben is sometimes included in this list as well so so that's a kind of that's a sort of intro to what Tropicália was doing in terms of music let's hear an actual track which
1: in fact the track which uh was one of the things which gave its name to the movement this the track the track is called Tropicália and it is by probably the central figure of the movement, Caetano Veloso, from 1968.
0: So let's hear that. I organize the movement,
1: I orient Carnaval, I inaugurate the monument in no the central do of Viva Bossa, Sassa, Viva Palho, Sassa, 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 Viva Bossa, Sassa, Viva Palho, Sassa, 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 So that's Catano, Catano Veloso. He's a very singular figure in Brazilian musical and cultural history. He was probably the most prominent of the Tropicalismo artists. Um, if you want a really interesting and kind of intellectually satisfying rundown of his career, then I can recommend an article that was, really a, was a review of Veloso's own book, his sort of memoir called Tropical Truth. Uh, The review is by Roberto Schwartz and it was published in New Left Review in 2012, I think. Um, And it's a really good article and a very interesting uh, and quite balanced assessment of Caetano and his ideas and his contribution. So Caetano is sometimes um, referred to as the Brazilian Bob Dylan and he somewhat had a comparable role as this sort of a, well, a sort of a generational spokesperson, but it, as it was sometimes described, I mean, more accurately, a, a spokesperson for the, a, a particular generation of a particular class fraction—a sort of university-educated liberals—and mm-hmm. he was—he certainly presented himself uh, and was seen, especially in the early stages of his career, as this very radical figure. At concerts, he appeared on stage. There was a famous incident when he appeared on a stage with, uh, you know, under a banner made by Helio Oiticica, and uh, which paid, which um, according to Schwartz, you know, paid homage to a bandit that the police had killed. Bit of a sort of, you know, you can think of a sort of um, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid sort of vibe here. Sort of countercultural figures um, romanticizing. Uh, bandits and a little bit and he got put in prison for a few months for this and he I think he got in, put in prison more than once and he was eventually sent into exile with with Gilberto Gill and lived in London for a couple of years at uh, the very beginning of the 70s and he's um and he had a very long and distinguished musical career and I would say you know for my money, is the, the, his more compelling music really comes from a bit later when he's a lot of these artists sort of get back into experimenting a bit more with Brazilian rhythm in their music. So one of the things that you can hear on that track, and one of the things that's quite distinctive about the sound of Tropicalismo is these guys are really, they are Brazilian musicians, mostly from fairly middle-class backgrounds, not exclusively, but mostly, mostly from... Uh, mostly from uh, the province, the northeastern province of Bahia. And they're very influenced by the sort of pastoral whimsy of psychedelic Anglo-American psychedelic pop. So this is the music of Pink Floyd, uh, the singles, not the kind of rarely recorded live jams. This is the music of the, you know, people like the birds. And it's really, and it is sort of aesthetically, and I think politically in a way, allied to a, that version of the Anglo-American counterculture, which was more anti-political than politically radical in certain senses. So on the one hand, they were seen, I'll talk more in detail about the politics maybe later, but um, uh, but I would say broadly speaking, it's subversive, but in a very sort of generic sense, in that it's anti-authoritarian. But it's not—it's not like it's really engaged in a sort of substantial political critique of either the regime or um, or, its, or its program. But they were certainly seen at the time by their critics and their supporters as very explicitly opposed to. The authoritarianism and conservatism of the regime to the point which they were seen for a while as sort of, you know, popular resistance heroes, and they were you know, they were jailed for it. So It's pretty dramatic.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think there, there's a clear one of the other clear influences is definitely the Beatles and Sardine Peppers yeah, that came sure. out in 1967, and I just think that was just like had a seismic impact on on all, probably yes, all of, right. almost all of yeah. these musicians. You're right, really. Of course. That's the kind of clear direct reference. Um, yes, definitely, definitely. You know, and you're you're also right. There's, I mean, it's very clear. They really like the kind of um, some of the kind of classic effects that we kind of identify with. Kind of the late '60s, kind of you know, rock music. Effectively, um, are very very prominent. You know, within the, you know, it's the use of the electric guitar. Um, you know, the use of you know f- effects. Uh, is very very prominent. Um, there's a, there's a kind of a, there's also a lot of use of, of kind of or- or- orchestras as well. So it's quite lush. Um, it's kind of slightly it's kind of freewheeling and slightly chaotic. Um, but I think you I think the the point you make about it being oppositional is right. There is I think it's despite dint of the fact that there's kind of you know a military government is is in place and is intru- attempting to introduce repressive measures albeit not as effectively as some that you know neighboring countries does make you know makes makes every artist and you know almost definitionally oppositional really but it doesn't mean you know the content is is kind of very necessarily very deeply examined i mean the bob dylan parallel is a really good one because i mean i'm not a, i'm by no means a bob dylan expert i mean very couldn't be further from it really but it seemed that bob dylan's engagement with 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 serious politics was fairly fleeting <laughs> um uh, it's what is, you know it's renowned partly renowned for that that it was kind of just one one step on a long and evolving kind of career which didn't involve a specific commitment or anything really and there's something anyway I mean that may maybe that's unfair but there's something no within- no I think
1: you're I think you're right and I'm thinking you know the the I think what's also i think it is the case with the tropical Lismo artists as it was with the young Dylan actually. But in some ways, the real influence on the X guys, if you want to trace a line of philosophical influence, you know, you would have to go into sort of post-war French existentialism and things well, like exactly. this. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's a sort of philosophy of freedom, which, of course, in the case of existentialism, was rejected by its own key exponents as having been banal, adolescent, and bourgeois. You know, mm. by the nineteen sixties, mm. and there is a there is something of that
0: to this. Mm. Yeah. Well, I think there's, I think that indeed, I, I mean, just very, sp- I, th- I could need to check the check, but I'm pretty sure that there's, uh, Veloso's lyrics like reference Sartre, for example. Yes. Uh, but not, so- not
1: to the Sartre of the dialectic of, um, uh, what's the word, the critique of dialectical reason, the Sartre, the earlier Sartre. Right.
0: Yeah. But it's, so there's something which is like philosophical, uh, is international, um, it's question, you know. There's questions of like, you know, being, etc. But there's not, you know, that's that's different from a program for political action. Although, you know, there aren't necessarily that many musicians who, you know, have engaged in that kind of way. Anyway, at this at this particular point, I mean, maybe maybe some more. Well, obviously, Felicuti is kind of, you know, in, engaged in a different kind of, you know, rhetoric for sure, um, and even maybe activity. But I think there's yeah, I think this is these are some of the things that are going on. I mean, so one other thing to just kind of mention is that it was Veloso who really seemed to be, you know, one of the early musicians to get into this idea of cannibalism. Um, you know, I think there's, he's got some quote I read from Veloso. He says, we were eating the Beatles in Jimi Hendrix. We wanted to participate in the worldwide language, both to strengthen ourselves as a people and to affirm our originality. Um, I mean, to me, what 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 gets left out of this is the you know is the originality on some level. I mean, I guess it does sound original, but it sounds sounds markedly more Western than you know you might sort of expect on some sort of level. It's, it's to the point where it sort of sounds quite imitative rather than um, than sort of you know something that is you know drawn on for a new, a new radical hybrid. Um, But maybe I'm under, maybe here I'm underestimating the level of, you know, Brazilian sort of musical heritage that you can hear in these records. Um, But I'm more struck by just how Western they sound. And of course, I guess that can seem, but can seem radical to a certain extent if it's kind of about, let's say, a call for democracy within a kind of militaristic regime. But, you know, from a West, you know, from a perspective, from within these countries, it is, it's less, it's less radical. In a, in a situation where counterculture is facing a backlash, and uh, very soon, and not not achieving its desires, it just be just being Western or being the Beatles isn't isn't kind of enough. But anyway, I'm not trying to I'm not trying to be too critical of this. I just think that I'm agreeing with you that um, the politics seems to understand itself as being just generally oppositional to an existing regime more than more than anything else. But it's also, um, you know. Within its moment, is kind of going in a certainly a new a new direction. It just it just seems that I guess I will also it just seems somewhat that the big emphasis on just how radical a break tropicalismo is in terms of embracing kind of you know Western musical forms just doesn't seem quite as as impressive when you kind of think that you know Nova had happened just five years earlier. You're listening to Love Is the Message. So yeah, Gilberto Gil uh, is a guitarist and a, a vocalist and another key figure in in Tropicália. Um, he was also he also kind of became did become much more politically active, from what I understand. And even in two thousand the two thousands served as a minister of culture uh, for the Brazilian the Brazilian government. So he did get kind of very involved. Anyway, Gil was born and grew up in, in Salvador, uh, which is the capital of this, in the, of the state of Bahia. Um, and early on was sort of, you know, working as a sort of, you know, folk, folk oriented musician, and then got into bossa Nova, uh, before he met, uh, Caetano Veloso, um, at, um, at the, the university in Bahia in 1963. Um, you know, obviously just, I guess we can say very, you know, precisely four years later, um, Jill then heard, listen to Sergeant Peppers and became very drawn to the Beatles. And were, I, I think this is one of the things that is interesting is just like, and we can sometimes forget, it's just like drawn to the way that they were able to communicate with fans. I mean, they weren't the first, you know, outfit to kind of do this, obviously, but they did sort of seem to take it to a, arguably to a new level. So you know it was this idea that you need good lyrics and you need good musicianship but there's also about there's also something about kind of charisma and presence and the connection to a fan base that you know became very appealing to these these artists um another kind of key figure that uh, Gilberto Gil met was or is it Gilberto Gil I guess it's a hartree isn't it I'm not too sure um but another key figure he uh, worked with met and worked with was um was um someone involved with classical music, Rogério Duprat, um, uh, who had also become kind of himself tired with the conformity uh, of what was going on in Brazilian music schools, having spent, I think, some time maybe in the United States, probably in the United States, kind of like either listening to or spending time with figures like Jean, John Cage. Um, and in his on his second album... Uh, released in 1968, which was an, an eponymous album. Uh, Gilberto Gill um, sort of recorded music that was kind of much more obviously uh, tro- oriented towards tropicalia. Um, and the cover interest- cover quite interestingly uh, has three portraits of the artist, each de- uh, depicting kind of you know arguably a different facet of his personality. So the central photo, he looks like statesmanlike, in another one, he's more like a combat soldier. And in another one, he's kind of ready to go out partying. And um, and so this cover evokes this kind of, you know, Brazil is a Brazilian culture as something that is fluid and contains contradictions and, you know, and um, all these differences coming together. You know, again, like the, the these kind of ideas of the, the, the can, cannibalism seem to kind of also evoke. Um, so let's have a little listen to the album, uh, the Gilberto Gil nineteen sixty eight eponymous album. It is Gilberto Gil. It is Gilberto. After all, yeah, I thought it was, but you were pronouncing it Gilberto. Well, no, I was usually, wrong. I was wrong. You are usually right. So. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I actually. Yeah, I probably should have known that. I like been more confident because uh, I did see him play at the Barbican. Actually, I can't try to remember when. If it was like ten years ago, that fantastic concert. Really amazing music and very charismatic. Anyway, um, let's have a listen to a track from that album uh, called Domingo. <laughs> So this is, again, it's another really classic expression of tropicalismo. Uh, it brings together elements of samba, but, you know, very prominently psychedelic rock. And, you know, popular music sounds from, you know, you know various, you know, various countries and Traditions all into this 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 one uh, album, and, and in this, this recording as an example of that. And his, the backing band actually is really key here, and we're going to come on to talk about them in, in just a little bit. Os Mutantes, who is like this rock and roll band that's very kind of vigorous, and yeah, at the same time, this this composer who I mentioned, Rogério Duprat, kind of also introduces uh, orchestral arrangements that kind of offset. That that kind of rock and roll emphasis. So it's a kind of very kind of earthy um, and yet at the same time kind of lush, you know. Arguably cosmopolitan, you know, uh, record that sounds sounds very modern for its time. Um, And so it was very again very typical of this kind of tropicalista sound. Um, So. I mean, just to link into the the next artist that you're going to look at, Gem, it was it was uh, it was uh, having met and started a kind of you know connect more. It was Caetano Veloso and Gilberto Gil who started a kind of wanted to gather people who would th- be thinking in a similar way, and uh, and they went to you know it was mainly to the Bayernos uh, of including Tom Z Gal Costa. And also Torcato Neto, who, you know, become these among num- numerous key collaborators. So I think you're going to introduce us to some of the work of Gal Costa, Jim.
1: Yeah, so Costa is is one of these figures, as you say, who is part of this network of, of musicians, mostly coming from Salvador. She's childhood friends with a pair of sisters who end up married to Gilles and Veloso, respectively. And she has a long and quite successful career as a popular singer in Brazil. And her biggest hits were to come some years later. But I think she is still quite often remembered um, for her participation in Tropicania. And she's the—I think she's the most prominent female musician or singer on the on these kind of up records that are remembered as the Key documents of the musical aspects of that movement. This track is called uh, Mamai Korajem I can't, I'm not sure what the title translates as. I know the lyrics translate partly, you know. I remember the first line means Mother Don't Cry, but they mostly seem to be quite poetic ly- lyrics, kind of like, partly referring to kind of ideas about motherhood and partly just evoking slightly pastoral imagery desdobrar
0: fibra por
1: fibra os corações dos filhos Seja feliz, seja feliz Mamãe, mamãe, não chore Eu quero, eu posso, eu quis, eu fiz Mamãe, seja feliz Mamãe, mamãe, não chore Não chore nunca mais, não adianta há... Yeah, and Costa obviously has this very pure sounding sort of angelic sounding voice but again but again it is I think as you were saying about some of the other stuff we heard Tim it was it, it also it sound, it does sound quite Western in some ways in terms of its register you know it's quite reminiscent of the kind of sort of slightly girlish very clean sort of vocals that are popular on a lot of Western uh, pop and even sort of folk Folk, folk influenced music around this time.
0: So we're going to talk more about Gal Costa uh, in the next episode. Um, so another figure that um, you know joined these kind of this key band of uh, Tropicalistas is Tom Z. I don't know if it's Tom Z or Tom Z. Um, looks like it should be pronounced Tom Z, um, with the accent acute on the E, but I, I don't really know. Um, and actually, I've just yeah, I really liked, I really liked Tom Zay's music. Um, it was, it was, there's a track of his, which I think he released in 1976 that became somewhat remote for a period called Mar, um, on the album Estudano Osamba, Samba, which I, I just think is unbelievably kind of exciting, radical. Yeah. It's, a, great, it's a really music. good track. Yeah. And actually the album then got re-released not that long ago. Um, So there you go. So then it became better known. And actually it was Tom Z is one of these figures who actually, he came from more obvious uh, obscurity than some of the other figures who became part of the tropicalism movement. And then he also became one of these figures who, you know, returned to obscurity relatively quickly. Um, but then, through David Byrne becoming very interested in Brazilian music uh, and kind of engaging with him and maybe including his music on a compilation or reissuing an album, I forget some of the details. Tom Z did sort of make a bit of a comeback he is he does come across as being a sort of a something of an outsider sort of you know quixotic kind of you know quite you know, yeah, just um. Yeah, more of a challenging kind of alternative figure in some respects than, than um, someone like maybe Cartano Veloso, for example. Um, I don't know if that's got to do, you know, it may have something to do with uh, Tom Zay growing up in um, a small town, which I think is pronounced Erara, um, which is in the seratao region uh, of the country's northeast. Um, again, sort of part of the Bahia region, I believe. Um, and uh, but it was very backward, you know. I think Tom Zay grew up with, you know, without initially running water and electricity, for example. So it was this was also part of, you know, Brazil developing and uh, becoming a, a, you know, a modern country. Um, Zay then sort of moved to the state capital of Salvador, like so many others, uh, to study, and then re- relocated to Sao Paulo, which is an incredibly important music city, uh, to begin sort of working as a musician there. And his debut album was Grande Liquidacio or Liquidacao, Sau, Liquidacao. Uh, Sorry, just really ridiculous not being able to pronounce these words properly. Um, and this was kind of associated with kind of, you know, again, Tom Z's kind of, Z's, um, you know, insertion into this movement and, and contribution to this movement. Um so let's have a listen to, you know, a track from that album. And there are a few that I was wondering about, but in the end I sort of settled on this that we should listen to this track of Gloria. <laughs> So, uh, just to kind of mention briefly and sort of in passing, really, is that sometimes Tom Zay is compared to Frank Zappa and Captain Beefheart. Um, I don't know if that's necessarily true of his kind of sound. I mean, maybe it is. It seems but these these analogies are not necessarily that helpful. I think it might be more to do with the idea of them of him. Of Tom Zay along with Frank Zappa and Captain Beefheart, Beefheart, being these kind of you know very determinedly kind of you know quite different you know somewhat obscure um, you know very alternative kind of you know musicians treading their own pathway that is not supposed to kind of fit categories. Although sometimes with Frank Zappa and Captain Beefheart, I don't not sure sure how difficult it is to fit them in a category but anyway that's that's how they're understood and maybe i'm kind of just need to understand know, know more about their music um but regarding tom zay and this track gloria and the and also the album uh, grande liquid Dachau, uh or however i should be pronouncing that um it's quite an in- it is pretty it is quite interesting and it may not be quite as interesting as some as or developed as some of the albums that, that Tom Zay is subsequently released. But there is this kind of quite an interesting kind of mixing of genres of funk, psychedelic rock, and bossa nova. Um, it does sound like it does sound like a, a more interesting to me than quite a lot of the other kind of tropicalismo music that I've I've heard, which just you know sounds like you know, versions, different versions of you know, acid rock meeting Sgt. Peppers, effectively. Uh, this is really quite interesting um and it feels quite unheard of um it does feel like yeah it's coming you know from a you know a more kind of more authentic kind of explorative rather than imitative i suppose as well. i put it kind of idea of of uh music and creating music i mean there are this track gloria there are change you know the tempo keeps shifting there are lots of breaks um there's the the harmonies are you know very unusual um, it's, there's a lot to take in. It's it's kind of I um, don't want to sort of call it postmodern because that would be I haven't really thought this through at all. But there's all these different elements that kind of seem to be collapsed together. Um, but it does it does work and it is quite I do find it quite compelling and quite interesting. Um, it's very zigzaggy. I think is one way that it's this this album has been des- described. You're never quite sure where it's going to turn. Um, so yeah, there's more there's more it had more of a more of a sense of you know. Being enthralled and a sense of also anticipation about what's going to happen next than I have had with with some of the other kind of music released in 1968. I don't know if you want to add to that or if you want to talk us through Os Mutantes in a little bit more detail.
1: Yeah, so Os Mutantes are this band, which just means the Mutants, is this Mm. band originally from Sao Paulo, I think. Um, And Yeah, they were they they were a kind of they were more of a rock band than any of these other artists. Although they they were obviously very much influenced by kind of psychedelic pop and rock of indeed people like the Beatles, and they were and they were featured as a backing band. You know, so they were used as a backing band on TV shows and for various other artists, Um, and you know there was an incident for there was an incident in 67 for example where they're backing um, they're backing veloso and uh, during some i think it's a song comp- i think it's a song competition like some sort of big public song comp- song festival in rio and you know they almost cause a riot because the students in the audience don't like veloso having this uh, rock band and my understand i i th- i'm not i never very clear from this if it's because if they were rejecting them because they were conservative nationalists or if they were leftists if it's basically a replay of the bob Dylan's or judas incident at manchester free trade hall and I'm, I'm not sure if it's even known for sure which it is actually because basically both bob was- Dylan
0: where Bob Dylan at Newport Festival, you mean?
1: No, it was Bob, Bob no. Dylan. It's at Manchester Free oh, Trade it? Hall in 1966. Yeah, it was a famous performance where somebody shouts Judas at him. Oh, it's okay. so I, thought you mean, I thought
0: you were talking about the backlash against him picking up an electric guitar, which was no, Newport. It is. Oh, it's the same time. Maybe it's two different yeah. concerts. Um, New- Newport,
1: Newport is when Pete Seeger t- tries to cut his power cord with an axe, um, reputedly. Mm and but 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 manchester is when is the famous bootleg that you can hear him being called judas on the recording and because playing electric rock was seen as a betra- a capitalistic bourgeois betrayal of the political vocation of acoustic folk music and it definitely is the case uh, the tropicália artists including bands like Os Mutantes were disliked and disapproved of both by the authoritarian conservative nationalist regime and its supporters, and by militant communist and Marxist in the student movement. Actually in both cases for much the same reasons, because they all thought that this kind of westernized, rock influenced, kind of liberal, sort of bourgeois, Anglo American looking music was it was a betrayal either of authentic Brazilian national identity. Or of Brazilian popular working class uh, musical identity, or sort of both. Um, so it is quite that is an interesting uh, thing to have been happening in 1967. Uh, this was recorded in 68. This is the title track of the compila- which was of the compilation album featuring all of these artists, which was released with the title of the track. Uh, which just means bread, translates as bread and circuses. If anyone doesn't know, bread and circuses is a very old phrase that was originally used by some, I think it was used by some uh, Roman writer in the very early stages of the Roman Empire, I think, um, referring to the idea that the way in which to keep the populace of Rome quiet, the way to get them acquiescent with a political regime was to off- give them bread, the, the daily dole of free bread you know, and circuses sort of entertainment. And it's a phrase which has been used over the centuries to refer to the idea that you can largely keep a population acquiescent with pretty minimal welfare provision as, and mass entertainment of some form. And, Obviously, the, the reference to this phrase, the use of this phrase is pretty uh, is pretty sort of satirical. I mean, and it is referring to the sense that these people had that they are not themselves, I think, part of spectacular mass entertainment in quite the same way. Maybe it's not. I'm not sure, actually. Maybe it's a slightly self-referential, um, maybe it's a slightly self-depreciating uh, phrase to use. I don't think so, but it could have been. And the music, as you can hear, is very, it does have a distinctive Brazilian tinge, but it's also very much influenced by the kind of fuzz rock of not just people like the Beatles on, on uh, Revolver and Sgt. Pepper, but I mean, I would say people like the 13th Floor Elevators, some of the slightly more obscure, kind of garagey American psychedelic rock groups. <laughs> Soltei os panos sobre os mastros no ar. Soltei os tigres e os leões dos Mas as pessoas na sala de jantar são ocupadas e So there you go. That's awesome, mutantes. And... I think it's something that's pretty clear in our discussion of all this. I I think we probably should have said this more clearly right at the top, but that that we keep being a little bit sniffy about this music. And I think it's it's important to explain a bit about the context of this, which is that, I mean, I didn't really know much about Tropicalia, and I don't think many people did, until there was this big explosion of interest in 2012. And it was in 2012 that a a Brazilian documentary about Tropicalia was released. And this was a few years after Veloso's book had come out and there was a number of compilations and records issued or reissued. There was a big
0: exhibition. I can't remember if it was at the Barbican or it was international or. Yeah, yeah, I think it
1: was was international and was at the Barbican. Yeah. yeah. I
0: think. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So yeah, there was a big, so there was a big fuss made and I remember at the time. Soul Jazz
0: Jazz did a big album.
1: Yeah. the Soul Jazz compilation. Yeah, Yeah. And, I remember reading about it and just being completely amazed. Oh, wow, what you mean in Brazil, where all this fantastic music had been coming from, there was this psychedelic movement that was really political really political and radical. And they actually put these guys in prison and exiled them. Like, how incredibly exciting! And it was like explicitly psychedelic. Like this must have been some sort of acid communism. And then Having read all this stuff about it, and then bought the compilation excitedly, and like listened to the stuff at home, it was all really, honestly, pretty disappointing. <laughs> you know that it just didn't, it didn't. The music did not seem to have this sort of radical charge that one was expecting. And then the more one read into it and the more one read articles like this Roberto Schwartz article from New Left Review, for example, it becomes apparent that, well, actually, that sort of ambivalence about tropicardia was pretty typical of radicals and socialists in their response to it, even at the time and, and subsequently, because they weren't really allied with the radical left. Gilberto Gilles eventually, indeed, did become... Like much more of an activist with the PT, the the Brazilian Workers Party, and eventually become, you know, became Minister of Culture under Lula, the the first left wing president in the history of Brazil. So that was really quite significant. But most of the more the most a lot of the most compelling music made by all of these people was made later. Actually, when they when they started using beats a lot more creatively, and it became much more rhythmic and and indeed more popular broadly. Um, the actual moment of Tropicalismo seems to have been a moment in which there was a sort of, it, it was a sort of countercultural moment, but it was a form of countercultural politics, which was allied with, I think Tim hit the nail on the head earlier, really. it was it, This was the countercultural politics of the Beatles. Before John Lennon tried to join the International Marxist Group, you know, <laughs> not it was not the counterculture of the Grateful Dead and Country Joe and the Fish. You know, it was the it was the Grateful Dead. I mean, it was the v- version of countercultural politics, which you can really see as in the tradition of Dada. You know, the early 20th century art movement, rather than the surrealists. It was in the tradition of the early existentialist philosophy rather than the radical anti-colonial Marxism of Sartre and de Beauvoir in the 60s. It, it, was, a, a, it was a politics and an aesthetic which, which was creative and exciting and dynamic, but its political orientation, Anderson was ultimately liberal rather than radical. Yeah, and its radicalism was largely contextual. and it was, it was radical because it was liberal at a moment of authoritarian clampdown. Um, having said all that, I do think there's something about the quality of a lot of the music that we've sort of hinted at already, in that there's, there is a certain rejection of masculinism of it. There's a kind of, uh, you know, there's a sort of, um, there's a slightly ethereal, almost kind of fey quality about it, which you might see as expressing a kind of delib- an aesthetic which is deliberately, deliberately sort of asexual, deliberately childlike, deliberately rejecting forms of masculinism in a way which is quite radical on its own terms. And I think it was bound up with the fact that for a lot of these artists and a lot of their contemporaries, the rejection of conservative authoritarianism was bound up with a certain rejection of paternalism and patriarchy. And I think that does come across. And I think that was also... I also think that was one of the things that made the Beatles so appealing in a certain sense, actually. They presented a sort of image of modern liberal masculinity, which was somehow less kind of macho or less stuffily paternalistic than the forms of masculinity which had been available beforehand. And that, I think, is quite interesting.
0: Yeah, that is interesting. Um, You might be right. I mean, I don't... I'd need to read more about this... Um... My understanding is that Caetano Veloso, as in terms of conduct, was reasonably happy to occupy a paternalistic role um, as the as you know once um, he returned from exile. I mean, we should probably like. I mean, I want to. There's a few a few other things to kind of respond to about what you just said, which was really interesting points. Uh, but i think we should just kind of clarify that um, how sort of this this movement sort of came to a, to an end um, and it sort of happened in in the, towards the end of 1968 in particular um, when i think it was first a, there was a sort of a police kind of violently kind of crushed the march of the one hundred thousand uh, and the violence in, uh, was was increasing, and then in December, um, the president instituted what's known as the AI, uh, I think it's the AI Five, the Institutional Act Number Five, which shut you closed down the closed down the parliament, imposed much more strict censorship on the media. Um, started overturning due judicial process in all sorts of ways, and it was two weeks later that the police arrived at Caetano Veloso's home and arrested him and uh, Gilberto Gil, um, who were then imprisoned for two months. Uh, were un- unable to kind of be in touch with friends and family and the rest of it. They were supposed they were supposedly arrested because they had made fun of the Brazilian national anthem during a live show and set flags on fire. Um, But from what I can understand, Caetano actually was not making fun of the Brazilian national anthem, but actually the Marseillaise, the French national anthem. Uh, And they were also reproducing some of the slogans of this artist, oitikika, uh, such as be criminal, be a hero. Um, So they were being, you know, provocative and ostensibly political, but it wasn't sort of a a particularly concerted attack necessarily. I think they'd also staged some mock funeral for Tropicalia already in a television programme. It's exactly the kind of sort of gestural kind of, you know, um, quite flamboyant sort of, you know, you know uh, interventions that were fairly you know fairly typical of the of the late 1960s anyhow following their arrest they went back to salvador um, and s- stayed there for a period but then the army asked them asked them to, to leave re- leave Brazil together and that's when they went to London for four years uh, and Jill got very interested in sort of psychedelia and electric blues and jazz scene and kaitona. i he did record a couple of albums but became quite depressed um, so that's kind of, there was, you know, there was this breakup of of this kind of key coalition of, of musicians that kind of marked an end and also an, an increase in sort of violence and repression. I'm sure we'll return to some of these themes uh, in the next episode, the, the third and final one on this Brazil during this decade or so. But to sort of... Um, come back to some of the other things you you said about the the music and the politics i mean i think i mean i you know i do i think you're you're right um i think that you're certainly right about this kind of excitement about um the idea of tropicalismo reading about it was just like incredible in some ways um but the music i never it was one of those albums i never really managed to return to um but then it's probably because i'm not that into late 1960s rock music as a kind of reference point. I mean, I don't mind it. I didn't mind it as a kid in particular. I'm not trying to be patronising. It's just not what I'm most into, really. And the other thing that I think is really, that for me is one of these defining elements, which is why, you know, I probably would rather listen to, you know, the the Beatles maybe than some of this music, to be honest, and I don't really listen to the Beatles very much, is that this, this music is kind of, it's like, it's a form of pastiche or parody um and i'm just not that into pastiche and parody i mean there was a point maybe 25 years ago when i was beginning to learn about postmodern culture and it seemed to explain a lot about the world i thought it was like incredibly interesting and cool but then i just found myself becoming kind of a lot less interested in it um you know if I th- if i think about you know if we just talk you know think about the loft you know for 3 seconds you know, it was all about kind of, you know, presence and organic and, you know, you know, uh, and, you know, a form of kind of real musicianship, you know, uh, originality, whatever it might be. And it's not, a, and, you know, just not about kind of, you know, irony, basically. Um, so I think it's part, partly that that explains my, I mean, clearly this is just about, this is about taste on some level there's no there's no value judgment here that this music is not as good as other brazilian music but indeed the one album that i really love from this era is the, the, you know the Jorge ben or album of 69 is doesn't sound doesn't really sound like the rest of the tropicalismo album particularly and doesn't go down this kind of you know fuzz rock kind of you know through these fuzz rock grand orchestral gestures but um and i'm not i'm not sure you know i think it's interesting about the the, the overall pol. i wouldn't say the overall politics explain necess- i mean i may might differ from what you're part of what you're saying or maybe i'm not understanding it properly i don't think it's it's, the, it's not because they weren't you know proper you know fully developed sort of you know leftist radicals that the music is disappointing because we can probably find tons of music that we think is absolutely brilliant recorded by people who might be all over the political spectrum um, I think you know my my I'll try to explain my own sort of ambivalence about the music is that it seems to be kind of it's it's over absorbed with a certain Western aesthetic that you know I don't didn't don't find that compelling and it has got an element of prestige. Um, but it's that's the main thing. You know, I could I don't know if the <coughs> Georgie Ben album of nineteen sixty nine has a particularly stronger politics, but I just prefer the the where the music is kind of coming from and what it's trying to do. Um, but certainly the Marxist left considered them to be quite apolitical and sort of obsessed with superfluous Western politics. And sort of anti-political. It's not just apolitical. Yeah. Sort of anti-political. Well, I think they understood themselves as being, polit- you know, I suppose, you know, this kind of, it's it's that kind of, that. it's, well,
1: that know, it's out, the Cold it.
0: War politics or whatever. It's There are certain locations from which Western politics Democ- you know, democracy and inverted commas and consumerism seems radical if you're like living on in, in, you know, so if you're living in, you know, East, you know, Soviet era, Eastern Europe in the kind of, you know, post-war period, you can understand why people might sort of hanker after sort of a bit of Western consumerism until they kind of get it and they get, you know, and Wenceslas Square kind of becomes the private place of kind of new chains of supermarkets kind of opening up from the West. It's what it was when I visited it. You know then you, then it becomes disappointing but from the outside this stuff can all seem very So I th- I think they understood themselves to be political and they were like they you know they did get arrest they did get arrested for you know but it was yeah, a bit surely. I think it was a bit gestural I think is your point and I think you're right um, and the and the Marxist left thought that you know indeed, it just seemed it's, there's something fleeting about this obsession with kind of Western pop music and this sort of a, this. I did the thing that the other thing I'd say. I think we've probably said this, but maybe not quite explicitly. Is there's just this? The idea was sort of seemed to be to be blending kind of you know various sort of forms of Brazilian music with Western pop music, and I didn't. I don't hear that that clearly necessarily. I mainly hear an attempt to kind of create West a Western sound, and something is definitely lost.
1: I think so. I'm conscious that we're hearing it from a particular perspective ourselves, though. Of we're, we're hearing it in terms of there's something we want from Brazilian music usually, which is the beat. And maybe if that's not what you're listening for, then you know it's Brazilianness and its specific. Well, it's not, that's the it's not it's just, be just the beat,
0: old. though, is it? It's rhythm as well, because we saw how Bossa Nova's like takes the you know the the rhythm to a kind of guitar playing, for example. Yes, new styles well, maybe- of guitar playing. So. <clears throat> I think that's true. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, but rhythm for sure.
1: Well, I think um, I thought maybe I would make this co- uh, th- um, refer finally again to this Roberto fourth article. Where he, mm. he 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 does see the, the ultimately the weakness of tropicalia as having been the fact that it sort of, that indeed it wanted to sort of celebrate aesthetically a particular idea of kind of liberal modernity, but it didn't really, it wasn't actually engaged in a critique of power relations. And it doesn't just mean explicitly in terms of lyrics. I mean, it didn't really posit a kind of distinctive, you know, a sort of opposition on aesthetic which I mean, I would, I would have to say, I would really defend the idea that, you know, a lot of the music we like, like a lot of disco, of course, it doesn't have an explicit politics, but it has an aesthetic which is clearly oppositional in some sense. Like it's quite clear that it is opposed to certain existing power structures, and and um, and it is. I do think it's something about the lack of oppositionality. About tropic, tropic idea, especially given the sources that it's drawing on and the selectivity of the way that it draws on those sources, that does leave it seeming like there's something you know. As Schwartz puts it, there's something sort of beautiful about the energy which is animating it, but there is this sense that that energy can't really doesn't really go anywhere. And I think that to me, that's that's true of quite a lot of things. Actually, it's true of quite a lot of a lot of things um, in modern culture that and i think it probably is true this
0: Mm. yeah i mean i I take your point i mean i suppose one i just was trying to think well what is it then that connects all the music that we like and and i'm not sure i'm able to process that but it is there is something about collectivity there isn't there i suppose that's one one the root and you know and then it's sometimes about joy so collective joy um,
1: but it also, it all has pretty direct currents. It, there, there are pretty direct links to sort of the, the, the liberation movements. Mm. Okay, like disco is obviously well, of directly linked to black liberation and, and gay liberation and women's liberation. And the thing with tropicalismo, the charge which is made against tropicalismo, which I think is fairly fair, is it isn't really. It's really, it's like the Beatles. It's the soundtrack to a kind of mostly socially privileged group who want to sort of liberalise because that will make their... They want a certain degree of liberalisation because that, that will make their lives more entertaining. But they're not really connected to sort of wider political struggle in any very... in, in any sort of way. I th- and I think that's true of the Beatles. I mean, I think it's also... But maybe that explains something about the historical fascination. I mean, I still... I think the reason people are still so fascinated by the Beatles today is because they are this sort of... They mark a, a moment of possibility... They mark like they they they're a memory. They they recall to us what it would have been like if, sort of post-war liberalisation and social democracy had just sort of calmly carried on and calmly continued continued developing. If all of the antagonism and social conflict of subsequent decades hadn't happened and hadn't been necessary. And on the one hand, it's totally understandable that people should really want that and it's something sort of utopian about it on the other hand well from a historical perspective it was clearly never the case and you know you know the Beatles aesthetic represented something that was completely unsustainable like it couldn't survive the political antagonisms of the 70s and I guess that's also true of something like Tropical East mode but, ne- but I think we're going to get into the first half of the 70s in Brazil next time, aren't we? And that is, yeah. what, I mean, also, I mean, the other thing, of course, is the reason, I mean, the other reason we're saying all this is because there was all this excitement in 2012 around tropicalismo. And it was the first time I could ever remember seeing Brazilian music and culture get that much attention, Mm. like in my life, in British culture. Mm. And I I listened to it all and thought, Oh, 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 fine. Okay. And then, and then like very, but very quickly I realized there was all this, this, this music, Brazilian music from sort of five years later was just mind blowing, like absolutely mind blowing. A lot of it made by the same people, and just absolutely some of the most compelling uh, music, sort of I've e- I've ever heard. That really does bring together sort of psychedelic aspects with 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 elements of samba and bossa nova, and it really and it creates this music which is transcendent and collective joyful and joyful. Yeah. And that's, but that's all happening, that all, and in some, and I think one of, I think one of the claims that is made about Tropicismo, or I don't know whether I buy it or not, is that it's sort of a precursor to that. It's part of the process which leads into that. So maybe what ends up really sort of justifying the idea of Tropicalia's importance is what happens after it. And what happens after it, as we will see next time, is very exciting
0: indeed. But there's a certain level of kind of a, a historicism here, isn't it? Because we've just been talking about last episode and again this episode, how this kind of Brazil kind of, you know, integrating all of these other elements... You know, from you know, you know, including kind of elements that come clearly from outside of Brazil it has been doing this already for forty or fifty years. But yeah, I point. agree. I'm not saying so like, I buy it. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. I don't buy it. We don't buy it, do we? Really? I think it, I think it doesn't.
0: This, it had a it had an impact, um, but it's it, it's just because it's got this name. It's got such yeah. a great name, and it had an <laughs> exhibition, and it's got you know, and it's got these you know a bunch of compelling figures. It it sounded like it sounded like a movement. It was a sort of movement. So it's kind of, it's, it's, great.
1: I think we have to end the episode on a positive note, though. Because the truth is, we've made a whole episode without we we didn't plan this out before. We made a whole episode about something that we both think is a bit shit and I, overhyped. So no, we, I don't.
0: But, I wouldn't call it a bit shit. That was none, that's your that's your choice. <laughs> that's your words, I'm just saying I don't find it as. Didn't in the end, re- remembering how I experienced it the first time and re-listening to this music again, uh, it hasn't. It's not my favorite Brazilian music. But it's and it's just you know, but the reasons we've explained. But I think it's uh, it had its own. Look, we're also doing this because it had it was seen to have this big, you know, historical significance. I think it'll be really interesting in the next episode where we really try and track the influence of this particular moment on the music that followed. Yeah. Okay.
1: Let's do that. Great. Bye bye. (laughs) All right. Bye bye.